our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hi, everyone. Seth Abramovich here, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope, a TV writer, and I used to like to roller skate a bunch. Welcome back to another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. We're always glad to have you here, and we always have something interesting and different for you. And this week is no exception. We have a director, writer of one of our favorite movies, Chip yes. and I. We, we see eye to eye on this one. And uh, it's a lot more recent than most of the things that we focus on on this show, but yeah. it definitely is going to be a classic. It's yeah, an instant classic, has I a, say. has the feel of a recent classic. Yes. And instead of teasing it, we're just going to tell you. It's Nightcrawler. Ooh. <laughs> uh, which I've often joked is what got me into journalism. Well, how could that be? Because this movie is only like five years old. Yeah, and, and my career predates it. <laughs> oh, that's why it. it was a joke. Okay. But it's also just the, it's the bleakest depiction of journalism ever committed to <laughs> yes. film. And anyone who would watch that and think, oh, I want to get into journalism is a very disturbed individual. <laughs> yes. And as bleak as it is, the director and writer of it, Dan Gilroy, who is our guest today, is the total opposite of that. Just such a warm, humanistic person. I would call him that, bright and sunny almost. Yeah, and you were just, you thought, wow, is he going to be like Lou, you know, from Nightcrawler or something? You know, but oh my and gosh, he was such an engaging, great interview. He's like your best friend from college that you haven't seen in, in a few years. Yes. But you'll see what we mean right after the theme song on It Happened in Hollywood. Okay, welcome back. So yeah, Nightcrawler. This movie has Jake Gyllenhaal in it playing some kind of psychopath. Um, <laughs> one of his best roles. Yes, definitely. And uh, as Sociopath. We, as say. we learned from Dan, he it's kind of like the first millennial movie, I think, because he's playing this drifting um, 20-something guy who can't quite find a career right. and stumbles into the weird world of night crawling which is kind of hanging around freeways and things looking for accidents with the video camera and selling that footage to local news right and you don't know anything really about this guy's past it just kind of starts he throws you into the movie there's this weirdo what's he gonna do so uh, it's interesting from the very beginning 
All right, so this entire project sprung from the mind of Dan Gilroy. He's a very bright screenwriter. Um, This was his first directing foray. And he comes from a really talented family. His brother is Tony Gilroy. Born Identity movie. Yeah, he wrote like the first rewrites. four of those. Ocean's Eleven, I think. And um, he did uh, Michael Clayton. With, with George Clooney. George Clooney, which Great was movie. a huge success for him. And he also did a lot of heavy rewrites and directing on Rogue One, the Star Wars standalone yes. film, which I really enjoyed, actually. So... He's great, and their dad was also a super successful uh, Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize, Prize winner, playwright. Of, uh, the subject was roses. Yeah, Frank Gilroy. Crazy. But um, I was interested in knowing how sort of these these dynasties kind of spring out of nowhere of these genius, successful writers. So we asked him a bit about his lineage. The thumbnail sketches. My dad grew up in the Bronx, kind of. I'm not going to say a street urchin, but certainly like an F student at a, like a high school, public high school with like 20,000 students. And I'm going to say miraculously, he was drafted into World War II. And I only say miraculously because obviously for many, many people it ended tragically, but for him it obviously had a very positive. Act. So he went into World War II and saw combat for a year. And when he came out, he suddenly decided, "Oh my God, I've seen the world. I want to go." and do something more with my life than just gamble and play craps on the street and doing God knows else what he was doing up in the Bronx. So he got into college, and when he was in college, he wanted to be a writer. So, so he's this street guy who decides he wants to become a writer. So he invents himself. He's right there at the beginning of live TV in the 50s in New York, and he starts getting good success doing that, and then he gets, like a lot of people, got, gets pulled out to Hollywood. So he drags my mom out to Hollywood, where they have my older brother, Tony. He, Tony's born out here. Then he's working for the studios, doing a number of films. Johnny and I are born, and we're now like two years old. And he decides... You're twins, right? Yeah, my brother John and I are twins, and my older brother Tony. And my father and my mother decide, they don't want to raise us out here. My father doesn't want us to get in the movie business. He doesn't like it out here. He doesn't think it's healthy to raise kids out here. For whatever reason, I don't feel that way. And he moves us to upstate New York, an hour outside of New York City. Middle of nowhere. I'm not kidding. It's like farm country. It was when we started going up there. And we all got raised up there, and it was very hands-off parenting. I, we grew up like on a former farmhouse, that sort of ramshackle farmhouse with a lot of property, sort of, not because we had, it was cheap property, but it, we grew up really unsupervised. It was the opposite of helicopter parents. You could be gone for seven hours, and nobody would say, well, what, what's going on? Like, it was, so there was no form, it wasn't like Hogwarts where you learned how to be a writer. My father was a writer, so the other thing is I should say is my father was writing all the time in the house. So every morning my father gets up in his bathrobe and his pajamas and goes upstairs into this old farmhouse and he just writes. And then he goes out to California for three or four months at a time. So I'm watching him do this. I'm not paying attention. I wanted to be a stuntman. When I was like in high school, I decided there was nothing. I like going fast and doing crazy things. There was nothing I could imagine. I was sort of actively going like, wow, I would like to go out to Hollywood and be a stuntman. Then I went to college and my brother John went to college and Tony now is a bartender in New York and Tony's playing rock and roll. And when I got out of college, I was like, I got a nine to five job working in Variety newspaper in New York. I was a reporter at Variety. And it was okay. And I liked the, but I, I was thinking I wanted to do more. And so I started thinking, man, the old man worked in his pajamas at home. Like that was, that was not a bad gig. That was like, <laughs> so I, so I think I'm going to start trying that. Well, I can't imagine what more you could want than to be a trade reporter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess he had uh, more ambitions. Uh, what can I say? I didn't. But then again, he was a variety, so 
Hey, you're an award-winning trade reporter. Don't don't denigrate <laughs> no, yourself no. that way. No, what I like, again, I'm seeing a lot of patterns. That's what's happening oh, okay. here. So I'm seeing that he was a writer for Variety. Bogdanovich was a writer for Esquire. Yes. You have these guys who are writing for magazines and uh, wanting to make their own films. You need to be a director, Seth. Isn't that what you're getting out of all this? Could you say that with a little more emotion? No, just kidding. <laughs> you all need right. to be. Can I say it like John Malkovich? <laughs> Okay, so let's skip ahead a little bit. and um... He uh, writes some screenplays with his brother, Tony, and they get an agent. They start getting meetings. He leaves Variety. Yeah. His dad is real supportive about him returning to L.A. They just sound like an idyllic family. I mean, I really love that because they're all working together creatively. No competition. No they're competition. All supportive. Yeah, it's so, cr- so opposite from my upbringing. But... <laughs> They they just sound, they're just so cool. I don't know much about you and your siblings. Actually. And they, you know, not intimidated by their father, even though he won a Pulitzer Prize. They're all just like we're going to be writers and editors and directors. It's just really inspiring. Yeah, and they're doing like you said a lot of rewrite stuff, stuff you might not even know that they had a hand in. They were working on, but it wasn't until Michael Clayton and the success that his brother had with that that it occurred to Dan, hey, I want to do that. Right. He tried his hand at one screenplay, which was kind of like uh, 12 Years a Slave, but different, more kinetic, and that didn't really go anywhere. So then he had an idea to do a screenplay based on Ouija, the crime photographer, but at the same time, this uh, Joe Pesci movie had come out. Yeah, but he was like a kind of tabloid, black and white photographer who took pictures of very bleak crime scenes in the 50s and sort of turned that into an art form. And he was very taken with that as an idea for a movie. So he had a couple of great ideas for movies, but he got beaten to the punch. But then inspiration strikes. Then in 2005, I hear an NPR story about nightcrawlers in L.A. And right away I'm going like, whoa, this is like the modern iteration it's not speed graphic cameras, it's videographers. And it's, because I start going, okay, this is amazing. So from 2005 to 2011, to give this context, most of the time I'm doing a paid job. Certainly in that period, I'm doing one paid job after another of some sort. But there would be like two months where I'd have off, four months where I'd have off, six weeks where I'd have off. And I would then go back and work on Nightcrawler. And there were many versions of Nightcrawler. I even shudder to tell you with some of them but i will tell you because because <laughs> enough know. time has gone by that i can tell you so at first i thought it'll be about a bunch of teenagers in the valley come upon night crawling and it's a group of teenagers and it's sort of like this post high school thing with punk rock kids getting involved in night crawling and there's like the bling ring kind a of bling it. ring version of this yeah. so now it's sort of like okay so i've been with that for a couple of years literally <laughs> in between jobs so that's peter now then it's going to sound insane. I became obsessed with chaos theory. I'm very into physics and quantum physics and, and, and things like that and science-minded stuff. Chaos theory, in essence, is sort of the butterfly effect. If, if, if something touches something 3,000 miles away, 4,000 years later, you can actually see the effect of it. It's, it's tiny things. You can be, big things can be extrapolated from tiny data if you have enough data. You could actually predict the future, theoretically, if you had enough data. I decided to have my group of teenage kids figure out a chaos theory program through one of their fathers who worked at like an aerospace company who had died and left this program. And they had not only come upon a, boy, you talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to knock myself down so many pegs and everybody's <laughs> estimation of listening to this because I should, because it's, it's not a question of being smart or clever or genius. It's a process and you need to see the process. So 
I came up with an idea that these kids, these valley dystopian Lord of the Flies kids, <laughs> came up with a chaos theory one thing of the father, found night crawling, and put the two together. <laughs> So oh now they're, they're predicting where the accidents are going to be and they're filming them. Oh, wow. I went like out and pitched this. I went out and pitched this to like two, two people for film. And I might have pitched this once for a TV show. I can't remember. Died a dog's death. Thank God. <laughs> Dead. He's right. It is important to hear how the process works. And I want to thank Dan for being so honest with uh, being transparent with his process. Yes, because a lot of times you just think, wow, everything's fully sprung from the mind of Zeus, like a living being, and it's genius all the time, but it's a lot of hard work, and even the people that are very successful and get nominated for Oscars and things like that have their uh, ups and downs. And uh, someone just said to him one day, some executive, you're, you know, you're, you're pitching two stories to me, pick one. And he realized, yeah, why am I overcomplicating this? And then he had another stroke of inspiration while watching Turner Classic Movies, my favorite channel. I might have been watching Sweet Smell of Success. I might have been watching Ace in the Hole. I might have been watching Nicole Kidman in To Die For. I don't know. But I suddenly thought, whoa, an antihero is really interesting. I suddenly became intrigued with an antihero as a concept. And I started looking at antihero films. I hadn't even really plugged it into Nightcrawl yet. And I was going, wow, antiheroes, there's not many of them made. But they're fascinating when you do a great anti. Because those three movies that I listed, I just adore those movies. I just love a good anti. Taxi Driver, obviously. And then I applied it to Nightcrawler, and suddenly everything came into really sharp focus because what was also going on is that post-2008, I think the world is really sort of, in some respects, pre-2008 and post-2008. Pre-2008, there was still, I think, some semblance in a proportional sense, where people could get a steady job. The gig economy had not reared its ugly head yet. It not really fully. There was no Lyft, there was no Uber. People had jobs. After 2008, things fragmented so much, you really got the sense, like in 2009, 2010, you could start to see it coming. Like for, I, I was reading statistics that something like 30 million young people below 25 around the world are unemployed and unable to, and I was just really going like, whoa, man, young people are having a hard time getting a job. That was really weighing on me. So when I came up with the idea of the anti-hero, I suddenly thought, wow, that's a great vehicle to plug into Nightcrawler to attack thematically what I want to do. Because what I can do is he's the door that I can open up to a lot of thematic stuff. Because Nightcrawler, a lot of people will look at Nightcrawler and appreciate for any personal reason. For me, it's a very powerful personal thematic film. There's a lot of themes in Nightcrawler that are there that I hold incredibly dear. Not the least of which is that it's a cautionary tale. It's that let's take a young person who's been pushed to the edge. And I'm not cutting Lou Bloom any slack here, but Lou Bloom is operating. Jake in that movie is playing a guy who's like in his late 20s. He's a guy who's knocking on doors trying to get jobs. And he's talking about internships because that was now part of the, our new lexicon. This was not something I grew up with. Nobody, you, if you had a job when I was growing up, you had a job. There were no internships. I mean, there might have been some internships, but it certainly was not like, Come work me for four months and I'll fire you afterward. You know, it was like, <laughs> right. that didn't exist. Okay, so this is what I was teasing earlier, which is that he actually had some, some real thoughts about the way things were moving in the economy mm -hmm. and that he could actually talk about those through the story of a uh, nightcrawler. Right, right. And also uh, running it back is uh, one of those movies, Ace in the Hole, the classic with Kirk Douglas, R.I.P. Kirk Douglas, we, we miss you. So as he has he mentioned there that this was a great opportunity for him to apply some of the, you know, very strong opinions he has about labor and the economy and the way things are going. And um, this was obviously 
way pre the Trump era, but I think it kind of telegraphs where things were heading. Mm -hmm. And so why don't we give a brief summation of the the plot, which is that it uh, follows this guy, Lou Bloom, who's a sociopath, sociopath, wiry, underfed, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal lost a lot of weight for this role. Yeah. And uh, he's looking to make any kind of name for himself, any kind of living, but he's a great uh, gritty survivor. And right. uh, with yeah. no convictions, I think should be, yeah, <laughs> something mentioned. Yeah, no morals, <laughs> do no conscience, He'll no stop guilt. At nothing. Yeah. Who am I? I'm a hard worker. I set high goals, and I've been told that I'm persistent. Now, I'm not fooling myself, sir. Having been raised with the self-esteem movement so popular in schools, I used to expect my needs to be considered. But I know that today's work culture no longer caters to the job loyalty that could be promised to earlier generations. What I believe, sir is that good things come to those who work their asses off, and that people such as yourself who reached the top of the mountain didn't just fall there. My motto is, if you want to win the lottery, you have to make the money to buy a ticket. So what do you say? I could start tomorrow, or even why not tonight? No. How about an internship, then? A lot of young people are taking unpaid positions to get a foot in the door. That's something I'd be willing to do. I'm not hiring a fucking thief. When he falls into this world of, of selling video of crime scenes, he finds something that really clicks for him. Anyway, here's Dan sort of explaining more about his notions of the character, what he was trying to do with the character, and where he saw the character going beyond the confines of this specific narrative. It's terrifying where we are right now. And, and the losers of the world are, are at the highest levels of government in, in, in every possible way, and corporations. And there is no spirit of humanity guiding the large decisions that govern our lives. There's no sense of what the value of a human life is, what the value of friendship is, what the value of tolerance is, what the true lack of value of money really is as a guiding light. I am a lefty, lefty liberal. You should know that. I mean, I don't know a better system than sort of capitalism or socialist capitalism. I, I think communism was proven through the Russia and, and other experiments to be sort of a failure, that, that you can't escape the personal flaws of people by becoming communists. The same shit comes out. And I think, you know, the movie captured that was Death of Stalin, right, which yeah. I freaking Great love. Movie. God, yeah. Ian Nucci is doing the coolest stuff. I so think that amazing. movie, I, could, I think I've seen that movie 10 times in the last two years. Whenever it's on, I just watch it. Yeah, It's just endlessly entertaining to me. So I'm not advocating a different system in capitalism, but, but some more tolerant vision of capitalism with big government, I'm a believer in big government. I'm a believer in people need to have rules laid down for them because otherwise they will not lay them down for themselves. Right. I mean, Lou definitely would grow up into a person like Roger Ailes or something. But the thing is, they don't think they're doing something bad. So it's like you're saying with the people that come up to you that see themselves in Lou, they don't think what they're doing is... Yeah. Yeah, he's a budding Rupert Murdoch. I mean, I saw this ink thing on Broadway, which is about the start of his tabloid right. thing, and it, was, it totally reminded me of him. It's just you, you put morals in another room, and then you get to the business of making money. Because Lou believes, and I can't speak for Murdoch or Roger Ailes, but some, maybe some down. Lou believes that survival of the fittest is the log land. And his experience, because we never tell Lou's backstory. So yeah. you can imagine a project. There's probably the backstory is an implied backstory of abuse, that he's been abused to the point of, in my reality, tolerance and empathy have no place. So in my reality, the strong survive because that's what I'm, so I'm going to do that. So how other people in business learn those lessons, I don't know. But you have to, at a certain point, if you can take away people's pension and health benefits and you can use the gig economy in a way that you can make people work for a certain amount of time and then just fire them without having to like, like treat them like people, 
then you've crossed the major line as a human being as far as I'm concerned. You just are. So Dan explained basically that he wrote the entire screenplay while his wife, Renee Russo, who he Name met. Name dropper. <laughs> well, it's his wife. Oh. And, and uh, they met on the set of Free Jack where he was hired to uh, rewrite one of the scripts. And uh, they met with Mick Jagger there to Ooh. bring a recurring bring motif to the season. But moving right along. So he wrote the script basically in this one stretch while Rene Russo was filming the first Thor movie. And he was sitting in a hotel room while she shot it. And um, he sent it off to a few people. And his first choice was always Jake Gyllenhaal to play Lou. Right. He's got this great character, and it's definitely going to be an indie movie. And so he told us real briefly that you need an actor who's going to... They have a list of actors that'll work for a $7 million budget like this, and Jake Gyllenhaal's one of them that can get the movie made. Yeah, he's like an automatic green light at a $7 million budget for yeah. a movie. So if you want to make a movie for $7 million, all you have to do is get Jake Gyllenhaal to agree to star in it. But easier said than done, you have to get him to agree. And so this is how Dan describes their first meeting after Jake read the script. His agent sent him the script. His agent was very helpful, sent him the script. And he was in Atlanta shooting prisoners. And so I flew down there and I had dinner with him. And I went to dinner with him and we sat down at a restaurant. And Jake said, looked at me and he goes, how do you see the movie? And I said, I see it as a success story. And he burst out laughing. He goes, that's exactly how I see it. And from that moment on, we were just, that was the answer. Because the re if you see it as a success story, then there's no moral judgment. And that's what I was always interested in. And that's what Jake was interested in. Because if you go the other route, it's a movie about a sociopath. In which you're just going like, aren't sociopaths bad people? And right. isn't it suspenseful when a sociopath gets in the car with a nice person? There's just so many things don't happen. So... That turned into a four-hour dinner, and Jake committed very quickly, and Jake became my creative partner on it, and we were we were creatively, he was a producer on it, and we were just creatively experimenting all the time. His, his idea to lose the weight, his idea to use the scrunchie and the man bun. <laughs> the man yeah. bun, yeah, I think that's the f maybe first and maybe last depiction of a man bun on the silver screen. There were some people who didn't like the man bun <laughs> while we were shooting it. Right. And it was a point of contention. His The amount of weight that he lost was a point of contention. Because people were just going like, I can't, the money people were going like, what's going on with this? This looks really freaky and weird. And you made him unattractive. Right. Yeah. Like you got and he doesn't even, can barely recognize him. And why is he sitting on top of a car? And why is he wearing sunglasses at night? And why does he have this scrunchie on his arm? And the whole thing was a little <laughs> bit odd and freaky. But Jake didn't change a word of the script. So if Jake came up and said he had an idea, I never said no to any ideas that he had, ever. There was not one idea he wanted to try that I didn't, that I didn't say, let's do it. Was the man bun his idea? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It was a good idea. He puts his hair up anytime he's about to do a criminal act. Okay, so the main characters are Jake Gyllenhaal's Lou, who becomes a predator-like... Mercenary, you mean? Like a... Yeah, but, you, you know, he has a video camera, and he's, he's either aiding and abetting in these crimes that he's then going to shoot and sell to uh, an equally amoral... Uh, the local news producer played by Rene Russo. Right. Very wonderfully. And then they have yeah. a, a very odd sexual uh, relationship. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. Oh, that's a great piece of tape. I don't like it. Like what? The footage looks like he broke in. There's no close-up of the homeowners, and he's giving us their name off a piece of private correspondence. Excuse me, that's junk mail. Well, I have a problem with that. We'll knock out a killer package. This is my job. No! Your job's writing the tweet of the day and getting Deb to turn sideways during the weather forecast. 
were running it. So when it starts, he's just kind of recording these crimes. And then as it progresses, he starts manipulating and orchestrating these crimes. Yeah, exactly. He It just kind of gets uglier and uglier. But the uglier it gets, the more invested you get into the plot. Yeah. But then he, he, he enlists like an underling to help him. And uh, that's Riz Ahmed, who from this went on to many great things and is now a major, you know, name movie star. Right. But at this point, he had just done Four Lions, I think, and whatever else in Europe. And um, he was not known at all in America. So pretty interesting story about how he got cast. I originally had written the part for an Asian-American. And I saw a lot of Asian-Americans and they were all good, but there was some quality that was missing. It had nothing to do with racial equality. It was just some quality of the guys that were coming in that, to be honest, everybody that was coming in was not beaten down enough. They were not They were not catching. Because I had this idea that he was a prey animal, that he's this little sad rabbit. And I think it's, I, the only thing I could extrapolate at the end of this long, arduous process of trying to cast this part was that I think it's difficult for a lot of actors to really let go of their ego and make yourself pathetic. I think it's just a really long stretch to come in and go, I'm going to really act pathetic. I'm going to be really pathetic. Because that's what I was looking for. And nobody was giving it to me. And his, his great agent, Alex Maybed, kept pushing Riz. And I'd never heard of him. I knew he'd done four lines. And I was going, like, I don't want a Brit. Because I, I don't want the British accent. I want somebody who's American and who feels American. And finally, he goes, just see the guy. So I saw the guy at the Coral Tree Cafe over in Brentwood. And I didn't want to see him. And he goes, well, man, I'm, I'm going to do a tape. What should I do? I'm going, look, dude, I'm in between meetings here. All I'm going to tell you is that nobody's hitting the mark. Nobody's becoming pathetic enough. I said, he's a three-legged dog. Do it as a three-legged dog. <laughs> and he sent this tape in. And not only did he do full three-legged dog, but no trace of a British accent, which was stunning to me. I couldn't believe it. And when I saw, when I saw that Riz was willing to go to this place, because Rick is just so sad. When, and when Jake asked him, and this was all Riz, when Jake asked him how much money do you want for a raise, and this was all Riz, he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> he can't even say $100, $75 a night. But it was like, that's Riz. Riz was like willing to go to this so sad he couldn't even imagine getting $100 a night. So, they, so once I saw him do that, and he's a great actor, obviously, then it was just like, I, I, Riz, Riz, is, Riz has the part. That was what I was looking for. Which is why I'm promoting you to executive vice president of video news. What am I now? You're an assistant. Does it come with a raise? Absolutely. How much? Pick a number. You pick a number. It's on, on, on seven, $75 a night? Agreed. Wait, uh, what about what about more? You know? Not now. We close the deal. I could have gotten more, couldn't I? Absolutely. So, again, patterns that I'm sensing. So he, when he says uh, you're a three-legged dog, uh-huh. that reminded me of with Laura Haring when when David Lynch was like walk like a kitty cat. Oh yeah. Like directors, you know, have like a tool bag of tricks they use, and and uh, one is, I guess, using animals, <laughs> right? The um, shorthand of animals to express how they want a person to act. Because he also in the in the in the interview said that Lou Bloom 
was a coyote. You know, he That's saw right. that character as a coyote. That's how he wrote it. And that the L.A., because it is a classic L.A. movie, um, that he sought to capture in Nightcrawler is not the L.A. of downtown gleaming you know, scrapers. It's not the L.A. that most people know from the films, but it's the L.A. where it juts up against wildlife and, and the wilderness. Yeah, and that sense of mystery, too, because most of it is at night, clearly. One of the things I loved most about Nightcrawler was that they got the local news stuff bang on. And, you know, you see a lot of local news in movies and it always feels kind of phony and fake. And it's obviously an actor playing the local newscaster. And uh, so I had to ask him, how did you, you know, get the verisimilitude so on point when it came to local news? And, well, he had a very logical response to that. In 2005, when I came to L.A., I, I'm a big fan of local news. I, I think local, I can watch it all day. I always, always thought it was sort of kabuki theater. It was odd what <laughs> stories they led with. The, the makeup, the sort of bouncy sort of patter, the whole thing seems, so I was always intrigued by this. So then when I started writing Nightcrawler, I started really researching two parts of the news. Then I started researching the Nightcrawler aspect of what all that world was like, and I found some great blogs for that. And then I started researching local news. So, so I was very conversant with local news. When it came time to shoot, we needed sets. So Jennifer Fox was going like, well, like, should we send it to like the news stations here to see if, the, I go, Renee, Jen, they're not gonna let us shoot here. Everybody was like, oh, yeah, we'll let you shoot. And I, I literally would go to the station manager, did you read the script? And some of them acted like they hadn't read the script. And then other people were like, oh, yeah, because, well, we don't do that. There's other stations that do that. So we wound up shooting at KTLA, and they were great. And once we were at KTLA, you know, Rick Chambers and Sharon Tay and Pat Harvey and Shotnick and all these people who I watch all the time, they were totally on board with it. So, so I worked really closely with them. Like Rick Chambers was doing the voiceover of watching the Granada Hills house. I was just showing him the tape. I was sort of like, just tell me how you would do the, just do how you would do it. And we actually were in the uh, control rooms. And actually when Renee is controlling the, uh, there's two scenes this guy is in. There's one where, where Jake brings the bad tape and she says, a stabbing in Corona, that's like worth nothing to me. And there's a guy sitting to Jake's right, who's like sort of an engineer. That guy is also in the big scene where Renee is directing the big Granada Hills house thing. And he goes, that's a 10 share. He's an he was an engineer at KTLA, okay. so I just used him as a technical advisor, and I said, "When you should just say whatever you would say, that's a ten share. Give me the B roll. You know, these are all things that he already knew. So he was just throwing them out there because it gives it gives it an air of authenticity. So when we were shooting those scenes, we had people who were in front of the camera and behind the camera who do this for a living, guiding us, telling you all the time. See, the other thing, Ellswood taught me this, is anytime you're doing a scene that is in a world that you don't know, always have a technical advisor. So if there's anything with police, we have a, have a cop there. I want to know what's going on. Ambulances, I want an ambulance person. Nightcrawler, I want a nightcrawler. TV station, I want an engineer there. So I think it just brings a real level of, of reality when you have people who do the job on set that day going, that's not what they would say, or that is what they would say. And in Nightcrawler, there's the, the chase sequence we have dispatchers that are giving updates all the time. We brought in three real LAPD dispatchers, 911 dispatchers to come in and, and we would show them the footage going like, what would you be saying? So it's just, it was always about trying to keep it as real as possible, all the time. 7 I'm behind vehicle, we are in pursuit. 7 the camera at the car and start filming. Vehicle in the black 
So there you have it. You just have to get the right consultants and you, you can get it to be sound like real life. Yeah, he really does make it sound like anybody could just do some movie at this genius level. That's kind of the quality that this guy has. Just like, well, you just get the technicians and yeah, you get Jake. You get the news people. <laughs> he makes it sound seductively easy when it's clearly not. Well, yeah, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. That's true. These are all lessons for you as a future director. As yeah. you move from being a magazine writer into directing. <laughs> oh, wait, for me? Yeah, or for, for you. the audience. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> for you, Seth. <laughs> thanks. This is clearly the career path the podcast has put you on. You'll be my podcaster expert. You have to follow it. <laughs> <laughs> but a few names that may have floated by there that you didn't recognize. Uh, Jennifer Fox is the producer on the film that he referred to. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned Robert Ellswit back there, who is his director of photography on this movie. And he does the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies. He did, uh, there will be Blood, Boogie Nights, Magnolia. Well, there you go. That's, I guess, one of the reasons why the movie looks so good. Yeah. And speaking about Robert Ellswit, one of the best sequences in this movie is this insane car chase sequence towards the end of the film jake and riaz's characters are being chased by the cops right after uh, something that jake set up yeah well we won't give that away well, oh, but, well, but that's an amazing sequence yes we wanted to know how a first-time filmmaker can execute a chase of this intensity and it starts with working with the cinematographer so when i sat down in pre-production to start talking about this robert elswit and location guy and other people go, we can't do this. We can't, we can't crash a tractor trailer at night. We can't do this. We're gonna have to be much more realistic to what's going on. So instead of this like massive thing that was going on, we decided to make it into just one long sort of series of accidents over this one stretch. We compressed, first thing we did, we compressed it to this one stretch. We shot it on Laurel Canyon between Ventura Boulevard and Van Owen. That's, that was the stretch we had. It was not a small stretch, about a half yeah. a mile. So then you get these like little cars, you get little matchbox cars. And you, it's, all of us sitting around a table, we start playing with them. Well, what if the cars do this? And that's how you start to block it out. So we started to block it out. The one thing that I brought to the table was this concept. I think the chase in Bullet and French Connection have to be held up as two of the greatest chases. They both do something similar. You are staying in the car almost all the time. You are staying in the car of, in this regard, what you'll see in most chases these days, which is about spectacle, is that if you have two cars going 100 miles an hour and they're 200 yards away from the intersection, well, what are you going to do? Let's cut to the intersection and show the intersection. And let's really light it from a crane shot. And let's really make sure you get a sense of what's going on. And let's go down to the hubcaps of the bad guys. And let's go, let's bounce around all over here. My whole thing was I want to stay in the car with Jake and Riz all the time. I really, we're only, I want to cut out unless there's an impact and show it or something else and show it. But other than that, I'm in that car. I want to be in that car because to me, that's where the tension is. You're with Gene Hackman in French Connection in that car. That's where the tension is. They're not covering that lady going by with the baby carriage from 14 angles. You're seeing it through the windshield. And where it really comes to focus in the chase in Nightcrawler is the first police car that gets taken out. The first shot of it is through the windshield of Lou's car. You see it suddenly get him and it spins out of the thing. Now, originally in the conversation, well, don't you want to be shooting that from the outside? Don't I said, I'm not interested in the outside. I, I don't care about shooting from the outside. Well, don't you want coverage of that? No, I don't want I'm not going to do it. Ellswit's going like, definitely, I don't want it either. Because I, let's commit to that. This is our MO. Our MO is we're going to stay in the car as long as possible. So this is some bold moves for a first-time director. He's just going to do it the way he wants to do it. 
And in an episode full of callbacks, I love that he references the French Connection car chase as a theme because William Friedkin, of course, is first friend of the podcast. <laughs> we think. <laughs> we haven't that. really heard of, from him in a while, but <laughs> you know. we think he likes us. So, yeah, so love that. And uh, that's true. That is what makes it work so great is that you're in the car with the two of them. And yet another callback, the way the vehicles tumble and in such a perfect way that it, it looks like he planned it all, but he didn't. You get lucky sometimes, like when the SUV smashes into the car at the end. It just miraculously sort of stopped in a perfect way that Jake's car could come through it and come around and do the spin. And the other weird thing was, talk about lucky, when we shot it and then we went to do the reverse scene where Jake is actually driving the car. It's the end of the takes and Jake does this 180 and stops the car. And we had this big wide shot. I might do big wide angle lens, really big anamorphic lens. And suddenly I realized there's this weird restaurant in the background with a torch with this like flame like like fabric flame blowing it's a really cool part of the shot which is like we're just lucky we got lucky <laughs> right so things just sort of lined up the right way and we had a, and mike smith did a great job mike smith, mike smith is the second unit guy brought together he had just come off need for speed where he had like the top the top drivers in the world like, like the swedish ice racing champion the the <laughs> the rally champion from europe i don't i wish i could remember these guys names i don't but I'm talking about like 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 in the names of the world of automotive sports racing. I had like the top five drivers that those five nights driving these cars. It was crazy. Wow. And awesome. so so you're looking at like the driving that's being done is, is done being done at the highest level. Again, first time director. I'm so fortunate that I get that I get these people to help me. You know, I wish I could say it was all me. It wasn't even remotely all me. <laughs> it was working with an incredibly talented group of people. Yeah. Honestly. Presiding over accidents. That's what Peter, <laughs> yeah. Peter Rigdonovich was saying yeah. that's what directing is, presiding over accidents. You are presiding over accidents. Hopefully they're happy, you know? So cool to hear how a scene like that comes together. Yeah. And just having the best drivers in the world at it, well, that probably helps as well. <laughs> and a little luck. But anyway, if you haven't seen Nightcrawler, obviously you got to watch it and, and uh, enjoy that scene and, and the great acting in it. I loved his answer about all the consultants they used and people that really knew how people work in local news, that lingo. And, of course, the main profession that he's tracking here, night crawling. You know, I remember the first time seeing it and just thinking, well, I live in L.A. and I've never seen footage like that on the news. This must right. be sort of like, you know, embellished a bit for the, for the yeah. sake of the movie. But not the case, uh, according to Gilroy. He did a lot of research and hung out with real ones. And uh, it was just as brutal as what you see in the movie. Here's him talking about that. So I can tell you that it is an accurate representation of the business. It is. There's no question about it. I went out with a couple of night crawlers. And one night crawler I went out with one night. We were going out. We were coming down the 405 at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And he would go by the Skirball Center up there. And he was going, pointed over to the fast lane. He goes, oh, I got a great piece of tape last month over in the fast lane. He goes, uh, I was driving by. I was so lucky. There was a pickup truck just like installed out in the fast lane. So I pulled over and waited for somebody to run into it. Because I had to wait 25 minutes. He goes, but man, I got this killer crash. Oh so I said, you didn't call. He goes, you didn't call. He goes, I didn't call. No, he goes, I'm just, I, I'm filming. So he just waited for somebody to crash into it. And some poor son of a bitch crashed into this black pickup and just, who knows, the fatalities, whatever. So that's, that's a get for them. Now, the night Ellswit and Jake and I went out with a different set of stringers who I never saw anything like Jake behavior at all with these guys, the Reichsburg brothers. Any morning you turn on the news, you see an accident, you look at uh, RMG, Reichsburg Media Group. 
that's them. RMG, they're one of the bigger ones. And they're great. I love them. But we, Jake and I went out with Robert Ellsworth. And the night that we went out, we parked at a central location somewhere between somewhere between like Hollywood and the Valley and downtown. Because you're waiting because you don't know where you're going to go. So we're just waiting. Just waiting. Like Lou waits with Riz the, the, all those nights. And all of a sudden, a call comes in at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and we, we're getting coffee. And he goes, oh, you got to get in the car. So Jake and I and Robert Ellsworth get in the car. And he's hightailing 100 miles an hour. And he's going, really bad accident. It's like three quarters of a mile away from here. So we pull up, and it was under the 110, like three o'clock in the morning. And a car with three teenage girls had gone off the Ventura freeway, gone down 40 feet, hit a road, and gone head on into an embankment. And they, two of them had gone through the windshield, and one had been ejected from the car. It was a nightmare. It was just these teenage girls, and I have a daughter. It was really bad. Robert and Jake and I were there to sort of get close and sort of see how they work. So we're following Howard Reichbrook up to the thing. And this is his job. His job now, and again, Howard's defense, his job, somebody had already called it in. You could hear the sirens way in the distance. His, his job was to film it. So we were watching film it. So, you know, you're coming up really close to these, these three girls who are screaming in pain. There was nothing we could do to assist them. I wouldn't want to touch them. I think one of them might have had some neurological damage or whatever. So it's not, your instinct is not to try to help at that point. The, you know, the fire trucks were in the distance. But you're watching this, and then within a minute of the fire trucks coming, he has his trunk open. He has his satellite feed up. Another night crawler is up on the embankment going trash talking. Go, oh, the better angle was up here. Better angle was up here. I could see over the top. I could see that one girl. You know, the, the, the much more. So, you know, it's a really brutal. And he was really happy. You know, Howard sold it. I think it led the news that night. I think it was like a $700 sale. And they, they show the, the bodies on, on the news? So what Howard explained to me is you have two markets. Howard has two markets. He has the Latino TV market and he has the L.A. market. The L.A. market will, will neuter to some degree the blood and gore that they'll see. But the Latino market, the Latino TV market, this was five years ago. This is what I was told, can go much gorier and bloodier. So what obviously what one of the components of Nightcrawler is, is that Luke comes into a station that's lower rated, that's willing to go into the more graphic blood and gore for ratings. So Howard, when he shoots something like that, or any Nightcrawler shoots something like that, you're trying to get graphic and real, but you're, you're at a certain point, it's up to the station to decide what they want to show. Oh, Yikes. boy. Talking yeah. about presiding over accidents. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> These are the bad ones, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Um, I can't even imagine having to do that. Yeah. So they're all really getting into the rhythm of making this film. You know, it's like they're becoming the night crawlers. <laughs> kind of, yeah. There was a little bit of a blurring there. And um, here's Dan explaining sort of how the shoot went, which flew by, and how it basically went from a cut film to a sale in record time. It was a 26-day shoot. It was a really brutal wow. shoot. We got through it. How, how much was that night? 22 days. 22 nights. That's crazy. And the nights are good. It's but great. Easier to, to film. Yeah. Oh, it's great. There's no traffic. It's a really cool energy. God, LA at night is just amazing. LA at three in the morning is just an amazing place. And then, uh, and then we cut it and, uh, it all came together really well. James Newton Howard did a great score. Johnny cut the hell out of it. Uh, we put it together. Bold films had, uh, had financed it. They were going to Cannes that year with a slate and we didn't want them to show it because we were, we just didn't want to go to Cannes for some reason. And they had a promo and they showed a promo and a bidding war broke out over the promo over this like three minute wow. teaser trailer and open road, Tom Wartenberg, who ran open road, just bought it outright. Wait, the three minute uh -huh. teaser was shown a can. Yeah. 
as part of Bold sort of like, here's what Bold is doing. They were setting up other uh, projects. Here's what we have in the future. This showed and created an enormous amount of interest. Wow. Tom Orenberg buys it sight unseen. <laughs> and I asked Tom, I was going, I was like, you bought this, like, you're a ballsy mother effort, man. I'm a gambler, <laughs> but like, he goes three minutes and he goes, I said, so what was it like the first time you watched it? So the first time Tom Orenberg watched it on Open Road, he and his team sat down in a screening room and now they're watching this movie. They just paid a tremendous amount of money for it. They've never seen it. And he goes, at the end, we were so happy. Because they didn't know what they bought. <laughs> right. So it ended up being released in October of 2014 on uh, Halloween Day. Ooh. But uh, it got its world premiere at Toronto International Film Festival uh, right before that. And uh, to drum up some interest, they came up with an idea to do a, like a viral marketing campaign. And they slid a kind of a help wanted ad, a video starring Jake on Craigslist. Ah. Here's how that went down. Jake and I were shooting this, the, the speech that he gives to the guy that when he's trying to sell the manual covers, they give me the job speech. We just, Jake, it was Jake's idea, but I ran with it. He goes, let's just shoot that like five or six times at different locations. So we shot it, we had the footage. So we're in the cutting room and Johnny one day, my brother is playing around. I said, dude, let's try to cut. He's just, he cuts them together in different ways. We took this bouncy score that they sort of used, this very similar score that they used in uh, Terry Malick's first film with Martin Sheen, uh, you Badlands. know, the Badlands. And we made this thing where Jake was looking for work and we put an ad on Craigslist. And for a week, nobody found it. And then suddenly people found it. I think it got 900,000 views in four weeks. So that when we played at Toronto, we had this viral like video. So, so we popped up at Toronto. Nobody really knew anything about it except this viral thing. And it was a rainstorm that night and people came in and I think people were just like, whoa, what the hell is this thing that suddenly popped up out of nowhere? And then we got released October 31st. And I, we, I think we took the weekend. If we didn't, we came close. And then Open Road became really involved in, in an Academy campaign. And, and they really just went for the awards thing, you know. So it, was, it worked out. And you got a nomination. I did get a nomination. It was, it, was, it was a wonderful moment. And, you know, uh, Renee and Jake and my brother John got nominated for BAFTAs, which was great to travel over to London for that. People responded to the movie, you know. It was just one of those, a happy accident, talking about, you know, accidents. It was just, the movie got smiled. The movie God Smiled. That's a good name for your autobiography. Not on those three teenage girls. Oh, come on. We got past that. Sorry. <laughs> I just can't get that image out of my head. But no, the movie God did smile on this movie. You know, you're directing your first movie out of the box. It's an instant classic. You sell it for millions and millions of dollars based on a three-minute teaser. It's crazy. You get to make it with your wife. Your brother is the editor. You know, right. Oh, Jake yeah. He Gyllenhaal. mentioned Johnny cut the hell out of it. That's his twin brother. So crazy. To keep it in the family. It's just inspiring. And he just and has... an Oscar nomination, we didn't say for what? Best original right. screenplay. Yeah. And so it's the guy is uh, just inspiring. It was just really awesome to meet him and hear him talk about Nightcrawler, future classic that happened in Hollywood. Because, oh, right. you know, it was filmed, a lot of these movies aren't even filmed in Hollywood. Actually, he opened was. the interview with that in a really funny way. Let's play that. Let's start. We're thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it happened in Hollywood. It happened in Hollywood. And it's happening in Hollywood right now. It's right now. Is this, it happened right in Hollywood. Hollywood. It's happening in Hollywood. And the movie we're talking about Woo. happened in Hollywood. Oh, that's right. true. And the interview that we just did happened in Hollywood. Everything's happening in Hollywood. It's so meta. <laughs> what is going on? We're the snake eating its tail. Well, we just want to say thank you to this week's guest, Dan Gilroy. He was a delight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for telling us how you made that incredible movie. 
future classic. And please join us next week when our guest is Jeff Garland, star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which Woo. is in full swing right now on HBO. So until next time, we'll see you in Hollywood. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.